Right on, right on, right on. Live right. Live right. In the real world. Right on radio. Right on radio. Hey everybody, Brian Cole, Pastor Brian Cole from the Oaks Church in Drummond, Wisconsin, up in the northern frozen tundra where we are in day two of a radical snowstorm. And uh, yeah, we've got 20 to 25 inches already. We got another whole day of wind and snow ahead of us here. And uh, I was going to go to the, the church and, and uh, have a, a decent presentation behind me uh, as far as, you know, a, a better atmosphere from the, than this. So sorry for the lighting and and all that and the sound i hope the sound is okay but so anyway uh brian cole and i pastor church up here in drummond wisconsin um love this place i've been here for five years now and uh when i was asked to do a sermon for you all this morning uh i really it was about three weeks ago and i've really been in this function about what to, to speak on I'm, I'm basically an expository preacher i exposit through the scriptures verse by verse i don't really do topical stuff i do periodically so after praying, I finally came to the conclusion of what to say today. And this is going to be called Truth and Love. And the reason why I'm going to do this is the same reason that we do this every single year at our church. Because I think it's something so important to the body of Christ that we need to keep it in front of us, not just on a yearly basis, but probably a daily basis. So this morning, I'm going to get real. This is reality, and I don't think we can hear this type of message uh, enough. I think we need to internalize it and, and, and allow it to saturate within our very souls. So if it seems like I'm directing my message at you this morning, good, <laughs> because this message needs to be directed at all of us. We need to have this in front of us all the time. I need to hear it. That's why I put it together in the first point. And in addition, I think we've all been on certain ends of this ourselves at some point in our life and maybe even now every single one of you including myself watching today is guilty of some or most of what i'm touching on this morning and i think it's important to keep this in front of us and maybe even do some repenting it's not only important because it's sin but it also ruins our testimony and therefore it has a negative effect on how we represent our Lord. And man, I am so passionate about how our Lord gets repped out here on the streets, let alone in the body of Christ. Listen, man, we're called to be ambassadors to Jesus Christ. And many times, man, we are a complete failure at this, aren't we? We exist solely to glorify God. That is our purpose, to make him known, to make his name known, to see people cast off the shackles of slavery, to sin and be born again in the freedom of Jesus Christ, just like you and I have been. But when most people see how we live our lives and they watch what we say and do, and this goes for what you put on social media as well. I'm so big on that. Does it make that person the desire to live out their freedom in Christ? Man, so many of us, including myself at times, we don't always act like we love others. We may not always show kindness and grace, but rather criticism and judgment. I'm part of a motorcycle ministry, and, and, and this doesn't have to be just in the motorcycle ministry, but anywhere, and you're talking to another believer uh, about another denomination or another group of um, uh, 
motorcycle ministry people and you criticize the way other people do that. And we can just look at all the forms of social media today and see all kinds of stuff going on between believers that is so far from kindness and grace. So the sad part for many of us Christians is that kindness and grace aren't always the words that people use when they first think about us. And there seems to be two camps in Christianity today. On the one hand, you, you, you got these people that believe in all the Bible, man, all of it. And they know it's the inspired, infallible Word of God. But many of those types of people seem to have a very ungraceful spirit about them. And now in the other camp are those who don't really believe in the Bible or they just don't see all the Bible as God's inspired word. And I think, unfortunately, that's uh, most of the denominations today. Yet they have a graceful spirit about them. So there's a belief among unbelievers that those who believe in the Bible are mean. And those who deny the Bible or parts of the Bible, they're loving. So they assume that those who believe the Bible must have an intolerable, hateful spirit. (laughs) So here's the question. Is it possible to believe in truth passionately and to accept others with grace? And I think... I think the idea that many of us adhere to today is that the only path to peaceful dialogue is through compromise, right? Through holding your beliefs less strongly. The more we act like we all believe the same things, the more unity there's going to be. The more we'll get along. But man, that's not dialogue. That's delusion. So, is it possible to believe in the truth passionately, yet to accept others with grace? John 1.14 said that Jesus was known as someone who was full of what? Grace, not just grace, and truth. He possessed both of those in fullness, and it made him both intolerable and irresistible. Jesus spoke with such clarity that his enemies couldn't resist or rest until they killed him. Yet Jesus extended such grace that many of those who disagreed with him still couldn't resist being around him. And what people experienced with Jesus was a kindness that was irresistible, a grace that's overwhelming, and a truth that was constant. Failing in either truth or grace puts us out of step with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, man. Truth without grace is called fundamentalism. And grace without truth is called sentimentality. Now, to really get a grip on this grace-truth tension... Let's look at one of Jesus' most misunderstood teachings, right? To judge or not to judge. Now, I could be wrong on this one, but I'm pretty confident in saying that the most popular Bible verse today is Matthew 7, 1. Or at least the part of it most people know, judge not. This little two-command word, or this two-word command seems to fit right in with the mood of our society, does it not? It, it, It seems to cover two of our society's most basic assumptions. Religion is private and morality is relative. People love judge not because it sounds like a good way of saying, you can't tell me I'm wrong and we can't argue with the Bible, right? The problem is Jesus, the one who you know actually said these words, didn't share our assumptions about the importance of keeping your opinions and your morality to yourself. Jesus was constantly making public judgments. A lot of them were pretty striking, weren't they? He called some people's works evil in John 7, 7. In Matthew and Mark, he told a group of sincere people, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So he couldn't have meant 
keep your ideas about religion and morality to yourself. And you know what? In case you didn't know, Jesus sure didn't hold back his judgment and criticism toward the religious Pharisees with very strong words. No, when Jesus denounced judging, he wasn't telling us to stop imposing our opinions or behaviors. Instead, he was telling us to avoid a graceless, critical attitude that writes other people off and tells them the truth and then pushes them away. So what's the answer? How do we deal with this? And the solution to judging is a culture saturated with gospel grace. <laughs> Even though Jesus told people that they were wrong and their works were evil, John 3.17 said Jesus was not in the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Speaking a hard truth is not the same thing as speaking condemnation to somebody. Judging is not telling someone hard truth. Whether or not you judge is determined by what you do after you tell them the truth. Judging goes beyond speaking a hard truth, this is wrong, to saying, I don't want to talk to you anymore. The cure to judging is a culture saturated with the gospel of grace, a culture that feels like Jesus. So I want to look at some ways, maybe in our own lives, that shows us that we live in a culture of judgment rather than, than gospel grace. And, and I really want you to, to go through these, uh, read, watch this sermon over and over and over, and look at these and be prayerful about these. Especially if, if one really irritates you, like who are you to say something like that? Guess what? That's called conviction. Maybe you need to look at that. So first, and, and I talk about this a lot, is when we get more angry at someone else's sin than our own. <laughs> now, if you've been transformed by the gospel, if you've been transformed by the gospel, your main focus is not with other people's sin. Hello? It's with your own. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, one of the first signs of Christian maturity was a frustration with the hypocrisy of the church and a desire to separate from it. But the next sign of growth was recognizing that the same hypocrisy in the church is present in you and me. <laughs> we have to confront others in their sin, yes, but always while being painfully aware of our own. The moment we start finding more offense in the sin of other people than in the sin of our own hearts, the more we start leaving the realm of grace. There will always be a vital role in the Christian life for confrontation. Jesus himself said in Luke 17, 3, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. But, as Paul says, when we do, we do so with the knowledge that we are made out of the same stuff they are. And if God marked our iniquities, man, none of us would have a leg to stand on, right? Amen? Now, in Psalm 19:12, when the psalmist asked for protection from sin, for example, he asked to be held back from giving in to sins he wants to commit and committing sins he doesn't even know he's committing. No matter how righteous you think you are, man, there's always sin that you don't see. Paul Tripp tells us that while we're blind to our own sin, others got 20-20 vision. So it would probably be a good thing for us to do more listening to others regarding our own sin than we do going after theirs. Now, secondly, I think many of us cut off those who disagree with us, don't we? 
And I would say, I would present to you that this is the very essence of judging. When someone doesn't fit our standard of behavior or conviction, we refuse to reward them with our very love and presence. And because we disagree with them, we usually take the next step of cutting them off. You know what? In essence, you're saying, man, we can't really be friends if we can't agree with this issue. Think about it. The ultimate statement of judgment, ultimate one, is depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Christians never say that to anyone because, well, they're not given that role of judge. And Jesus never said that to anyone while he was on the earth. He predicted that one day in heaven he would say that, but on earth, even after Judas betrayed him with a kiss and called him friend, he didn't say that. We do what Jesus did. We speak truth and then offer kindness and love, continually drawing them close as they will let us, even if it costs us our lives, man. What Jesus is saying is that we have to love the person we disagree with more than we love their agreement on a particular issue we have with them. Now, it does not mean we ever compromise or water down our position. It means we stay committed to and in relationship with those who passionately disagree with us. And here's one we're all guilty of, man. Gossip. And gossip is judging because really it condemns the person that we're talking about. It doesn't redemptively invite them to a better behavior. That's graceful confrontation, but rather it dismissively writes them off and flawed and worthy of scorn. And what makes gossip so dangerous is that we're judging someone without even giving them the benefit of knowing that we're doing it. How pathetic is that? We're not even offering them a chance to change. It's as, it's as if we don't even think that they can change, or they're not even worth the discomfort of our presence so that they even can. In a way, gossip is the ultimate form of judgment because it writes people off without telling a man. Now, here's another one. we got to get this one. Refusing to correct someone's position. Ironically, not telling people they're wrong is also a way of judging them. As a Christian, if we refuse to correct someone, it's really for one of two reasons. You don't believe the Bible's true. You don't think the other person can actually change. And guess what? Neither one of those is honoring to God. And as with gossiping, by assuming the other person won't change or won't listen, you're judging and condemning them from the start. Man, you're dooming them to sin without even giving them a chance to change and receive grace. Remember, God has the power to do whatever he wants, man. This ain't about you and I. But this also is not something we do in public or on social media, at least initially. Now, here's another powerful one. We refuse to receive criticism. Now, let's ask ourselves, Brian, <laughs> why do I hate criticism so much? Isn't it because I hate to admit I have faults, right? We, we sometimes see ourselves as uh, righteous, more righteous and more qualified to dispense judgment than a sinner in need of grace. We, we think it's more important for us to play judge than to be judged. But if we understand the gospel, man, our faults shouldn't surprise us. When other people point out our depravity, 
we should be able to say, well, of course. In fact, I'm way more sinful than you probably know. But I'm not afraid of that because nothing can ever be revealed about me that the blood of Jesus Christ has not already covered. Hallelujah. And that recognition will change how you point out the sin of other people. And finally, we have the tendency to write people off as hopeless. Think about that one. We have the tendency to write people off as hopeless. And I, there isn't no one of you watching this, including myself, speaking it, that hasn't been there in their mind at one time or another in our Christian walk. And writing someone off as hopeless means we're th we think that they're past saving. We declare judgment upon them. Paul said the gospel is the power of God, not Pastor Brian, for everyone who believes. It's not our place to amend that. If you're not dead, God's not done. If they're not dead, God's still got hope. There's hope. A culture shaped by gospel grace does more than just speak to people with grace. It showers them with the generosity of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen all around us, man, Christians are becoming less and less popular in our society. I think most people will probably talk to the IRS than some of us Christians. And it's because of this that I think a lot of believers are ready to go to war and think, man, it's time to show everyone that we're really the truly righteous ones. Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? Who has the time to be civil when we're under attack? But we do not look to culture for our response, man. We look to Jesus. And by looking to the scriptures, we find the unchanging example of Jesus Christ, who, uh, 1 Peter 2, 23, one reviled, did not revile in return. Jesus did not conquer sin by fighting sinners. He conquered sin by dying because of it and rising up from the dead to defeat it. On the other side of his death, there was the power of resurrection. And he offers that same pattern to us. Extending gospel grace means sometimes we might feel scorned and defeated in public, even misunderstood and, and abandoned. But guess what? So did Jesus. But remember, the weight of the, of the cross leads to resurrection power. And being this way is a whole lot more important now than ever. Our world is getting so much sicker and is in need of the healing power of the gospel. And we must aim for the same paradox Jesus embodied in his ministry and what was that grace and truth. And only that crucial gospel formula sets people free. We must not only speak the gospel of Christ, but we must do so with the very spirit of Christ. Otherwise, we lie about him no matter what we're saying. The gospel truth in our churches has to be matched by gospel generosity in the streets. If we actually speak truth with grace, you might just be surprised at the walls of our society which built that they built comes crumbling down, man. As believers, we should be known for our outlandish love towards our neighbors and the world around us. There was a time when the grace of Christians was overwhelmingly evident to the surrounding community, and it impacted everyone around them. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian actually complained about the kindness of the Christians in his day. He quoted, How can we stop the growth of these wretched Galileans? 
They take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. Man, what if that was the complaint that our culture had against us? Wouldn't it be nice for the world to hate us for loving them as well? Man, what if your town board chairman stormed into the mayor's office and says, dang it, we have to cancel another government program because those Christians have already met the need. And if this sounds laughable to you, maybe that's a sign of how far we have fallen from the gospel. Ray Ortland in his book, The Gospel, says that culture, a culture of grace should naturally accompany gospel doctrine. And when it doesn't, something is deeply wrong. Even the words we use in our creed are exactly right. A church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel and practice. The risen Lord said to one of his churches in Revelation 3.17 this, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem was not that they believed doctrinally, but what they had became personally. And they didn't even realize it. Yet it was obvious to the Lord. Revelation 3.15, I know your work. Therefore, they needed to go to Christ with a new humility, openness, and honesty. Now, Ortland goes on to say this, Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. In other words, man, we can, we can preach Jesus in my place all we want, but it doesn't make our members say, let me bring the love of Jesus to your place. And it won't be convincing to a world looking for a better story to believe in and a better community to belong to. But before this gospel love can spill out into the streets, it's first got to saturate our pews. And sadly, this is the place where I see it less practiced. Man, Francis Schaeffer used to say that love on display was Christ's final apologetic to a skeptical world. And Schaeffer was referring to the love that should exist between us believers. And Jesus said this too in John, 10, John 13, 35. He told us that the world would know that we are his by the way we love one another, believers. Now, first, not first by the way we love the world, but by the way we love one another. Some of us who are most the most lit up to impact the world with the love of the gospel seem to overlook this crucial family first dimension of gospel grace, but I think that it is a mistake that many Christians make. Overlooking the fact that Christ-like love should first be expressed and lived out in the church. If love is not first lived out in the family of believers, how can it possibly extend out into the world? You're pathetic if you believe that. Grace can only spill out into the streets if it's first overflowing in the heart of God's people, the church. Listen, the church was created to be such a place, such a miracle of love that people from the outside could see the image of Christ simply and how we relate to one another. What image are you projecting? 
We are the Jesus the world sees in our fellowship, in the holiness of the life we live, in its cultural diversity, in its selfless act of love, and in its forgiveness and boldness, the body of Christ reveals heavenly. It reveals, it reveals the beautiful Christ that dwells within us to the others, to other people around us. And to say it plainly, those who believe in the gospel should look like the gospel. And that starts with how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Unfortunately, I'm not so sure that the way we see Christians treat each other, especially in the public and most especially on social media, would typically be described as full of grace and truth. Remember, truth without grace is judgmental fundamentalism and grace without truth is sentimentality. Combine both and we'll be like Jesus and we'll find ourselves attracting people like he did. Let me finish by saying this. Jesus, the gospel tells us, came from the Father full of grace and truth. The true churches have worked over time on the truth part of this formula. We can see it in, in, in the history of the church councils and its creeds and its volumes of theology and denominational splits over minor points of doctrine. I yearn for the church to compete just as hard in conveying what Paul calls the incomparable riches of God's grace. I think more times than not, we are perceived more as guilt dispensers than grace dispensers. And Jesus, man, had the uncanny ability to look with, to everyone with just grace-tinted eyes, seeing not only the beauty of who they were, but the potential of what they could become. Look at you and I. Look at our before Christ, after Christ experience. And we are, his followers have the same challenge. 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Evidently, we're not doing likewise since so many people think of faith, especially the evangelical faith, as bad news. People believe Christians view them through the eyes of judgment, not the eyes of grace. Somehow we need to reclaim the good news of the gospel. So let our prayers this week, man, be this. We'll end with this. God, just help me to see others. Not as merely enemies or ungodly, but rather thirsty people. And give us the courage and compassion to offer your living water, which alone quenches deep thirst. And God, just lay it on my heart. The things that I need to see within myself, that log, before I go to a brother's speck. And when that log is dealt with, when I have the, uh, the, the humility and the, and, the, and the grace and the understanding, the confession and repentance and the confession and the repentance over and over and over to deal with my own stuff, what brother or sister do I need to go to to not only ask her for their forgiveness, but to show them their speck? Amen. I love you, but God loves you more. Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Right on radio. Right on radio.